Good morning, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started for our second panel uh, focused on energy issue. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, my name is Alina Polyakova. I'm the deputy director of the Eurasia Center here at the Atlantic Council. Uh, and it's my pleasure to welcome our very distinguished panel uh, today. Uh, to my immediate left is uh, Mr. Ed Chow, who is a senior fellow in the Energy and National Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And then uh, to Ed's left, uh, we have uh, Mr. Steve Nicondros, who is the founder um, and the chairman of the board of directors and chief executive officer of Frontera Resources Corporation. And he has focused Frontera's greater Black Sea strategy and activities on the emerging markets of Eastern Europe. And last but certainly not least, uh, we have David Karani, who is uh, the director of the Eurasian Energy Futures Initiative here at the Atlantic Council and is an expert in the geopolitics of energy. So welcome, thank you for joining us here today. Uh, rather than uh, allowing you to speak first, <laughs> I'd like to go ahead and move straight into questions. Um, we heard this morning about the security situation in the Black Sea, and this panel we're going to focus about we're going to focus on the intersection of energy and security issues. So Ed, uh, my question for you. There are many definitions of energy security out there. Uh, in your view, what does energy security look like in the Black Sea region? Well, energy security, broadly speaking, in my mind, is access to affordable energy in a secure and, and stable way. Um, uh, and uh, now what does that look like in the Black Sea region? I, I think the Black Sea region is, in, in many cases, uh, still suffering under um, the burden of history. Uh, the, the Black Sea, you know, bodies of water can, can gather people together or can separate people. And, and the history of the Black Sea is that they seem, it seemed to have more separated people uh, the traditional tension between, say, the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire uh, in the Black Sea. And we're seeing a bit of a replay, it, it seems to me, of, of, of that. But the thing that concerns me more as an energy industry person is that it's also still suffering under the legacy um, of the Soviet Union uh, and the centrally planned uh, economies, um, the, the, the habit, the old habits, of, of thinking of, of energy as a responsibility of the state, uh, and therefore too important to uh, be uh, uh, left to markets and competition uh, to supply population uh, with energy security. Um, and it has been used as a way of preserving uh, post-Soviet legacy mm -hmm. of how the industry operates, how it's organized, um, uh, and, and, uh, and from my point of view, policy is too politicized mm -hmm. and there's not enough economic and business underpinning to many of the uh, uh, policies that governments say they want to pursue, but yet uh, maintain state monopolies, uh, uh, see state monopolies uh, as a rent extraction mach machine for the elite. I think Ukraine is a classic, was a classic example of that. It may be changing now, but, but that's certainly the poster child uh, for, for that kind of behavior. But it's not limited to Ukraine. You see that in Moldova, you see that in, in Bulgaria today still. Uh, and you know, in Romania, where I was uh, late last year, they finally uh, uh, prosecuting corruption, uh, including in, in the energy sector. So changes are coming but a, a little too late. Mm -hmm. For Russia, 
um, the, the rising oil prices of the 2000s have allowed recentralization of, of, of the energy sector into state hands, state control, uh, justify national champion companies like Rosneft and Gazprom. Uh, and, and so that makes it even more political uh, in, in a way. And Turkey, which is going through its own uh, uh, episodes, shall we say, um, I mean, you, you now have a energy minister who is the president's son-in-law. I mean, how much more political can, can you get? Uh, so, um, and, and from my point of view, that over-politicization tends to block good projects, tend to devote too much ex uh, 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 energy, uh, political capital on fantasy projects. I mean, the last time I was in Romania, people were still talking about agri. Well, you know, if, if no one's had put a stake in the heart of agri, I don't know, you know, uh, uh, when that's going to take place. So the lack of positive reform, I think, damages energy security in the region rather than, than, than progress it. But then I'm biased as, a, <laughs> well. as an industry person. Well, I do appreciate you bringing up the historical uh, point of view into this. I think we often forget that history still manifests itself across this region in, in, in profound ways. So, Steve, just to follow up on that, um, you know, despite this burden of history that, that Ed has highlighted, you still see potential in the Black Sea region for increased energy exploration, and you worked extensively in the region. But in what way do you see the Black Sea as a real energy market as opposed to just a geographic region? So in other words, um, can we think of it as a thoroughfare, a source of energy, a destination of energy? So what does this market look like in a, in a region like the Black Sea? Right. No, I think that's an excellent question. Uh, you know, the Black Sea, uh, maybe, uh, maybe we don't look at it as a burden of history, but uh, uh, the, the, the history of uh, uh, of energy development around the Black Sea is quite extensive. And when you look at the, uh, the resource potential that exists today in Ukraine, for example, that uh, has been discovered in Georgia, that exists uh, uh, in Azerbaijan, uh, that uh, potentially exists in Bulgaria, that certainly exists in Romania, uh, nothing said about uh, the offshore regions uh, of each of these countries in the Black Sea. There's a huge future that, uh, that awaits in exploration and ultimately development uh, for energy. So number one, in answer to your question, uh, the greater Black Sea region, uh, including Russia, uh, can provide a tremendous amount of energy to the surrounding area. And ultimately, number two, can be a hub for uh, wheeling energy uh, into, uh, into Europe um, uh, and uh, participate in Europe's uh, Europe's growth over the next uh, many decades and, uh, and become uh, truly an energy market for not only uh, 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 providing indigenous uh, uh, resources of oil and gas, but also in uh, providing an integrated uh, pipeline network that allows the free wheeling and trading of, uh, of the significant uh, resources that are situated around the Black Sea. Absolutely. And just as a follow-up to that, to that question, um, are there specific countries that you see arising as the real energy innovators um, in the short or, or long term? Sure. Well, uh, let, me start with, uh, let me start with Ukraine. I think Ukraine, uh, and I've spoken about this before here, Ukraine has a huge potential uh, uh, to be a laboratory for uh, renaissance 
you know, few people remember that uh, in the 1970s, early 80s, uh, just in gas alone, Ukraine was producing 70 billion cubic meters annually. And today they've uh, done well with all the problems to maintain about 20 billion cubic meters annually. But the significance of that delta, of the difference between uh, 70 and 20, is really meaningful to the upstream industry because it was uh, an artificial uh, uh, it was an artificial decline that resulted from the collapse of the Soviet Union, lack of investment. Uh, the whole world just fell around this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, area that's very rich in natural resources. And so the potential to bring it back is huge. And it direct, uh, directly correlates to the first panel today that uh, with good security, uh, investment comes back. And uh, uh, with assurances of uh, long-term stability, investment comes back and can help push uh, that huge potential to be developed. And to develop it requires innovation. And uh, uh, as you point out, Alina, in your question, uh, Ukraine can be a platform for innovation and become a major supplier of, uh, of gas to itself for energy independence, oil as well, but also uh, to its neighbors uh, in uh, the European Union. Uh, Georgia is another great example. You know, with our own personal experience, we've discovered uh, huge amounts of, uh, uh, of gas in the country. And uh, uh, again, because of innovation, uh, uh, that gas has been discovered and is getting ready uh, uh, to come to the market. Uh, and uh, again, security is important, uh, uh, but also uh, 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 encouraging uh, innovation is important. And to do that, uh, uh, there have to be uh, uh, governments that are dedicated to reform. And uh, someone mentioned it earlier that, uh, uh, you know, energy ministries seem to be a magnet for, uh, for corruption. And uh, uh, because so much money and uh, so much uh, value goes, uh, goes through these energy ministries. And uh, in Ukraine, we've seen, you know, important steps towards reforming uh, the energy market. And uh, uh, as an investor in that part of the world, that gives, that gives me encouragement. Uh, in Georgia, we see the opposite. We see an energy ministry that, uh, that has other objectives in mind uh, and uh, doesn't really want to encourage uh, the development of, uh, uh, of natural resources in its country uh, for a variety of reasons. So the question of innovation directly correlates to you know, how much each country uh, around the Black Sea that, that uh, uh, has this potential is willing to install proper reforms uh, install proper uh, uh, measures of encouragement uh, uh, for investment. Um, and uh, all of this under the umbrella of what the first panel discussed today of, of providing regional security assurances to where if billions of dollars are invested by uh, independent industries in the energy sector that these are not going to be put at risk uh, uh, with uh, invasions from Russia uh, as we've seen in Ukraine, as we've seen in Georgia instability in Transnistria, all of this acts as a deterrent to, to innovation. And that goes back to Ed's earlier point about how the politicization of energy policy actually blocks um, many good projects, but also not just projects, but actual innovation entrepreneurship taking place in this uh, very important sector. So we'll come back to some of these issues specifically focused on Ukraine and Russia. Um, but David, uh, staying on this topic of the Black Sea uh, as an energy market, I want to turn to Turkey. Uh, Turkey is perhaps the, the key player in this region, has one of the fastest growing energy markets in the world. 
And recently, Turkey has moved to speed up the construction of the Trans-Anatolian Natural Gas Pipeline, which is designed to carry Azeri gas to Europe via Turkey, and it's set up new liquefied natural gas LNG facilities. Um, yet Turkey has also been very wary of allowing LNG transports uh, pass, through, pass through the Bosphorus. And um, there's been, you know, as the first panel has already mentioned, uh, increasing tensions and a, re a real low point for Russia-Turkey relations, uh, the recent letter from uh, Erdogan to Putin notwithstanding. Uh, so given this recent spike in tensions between Turkey and Russia, uh, do you think Turkey will look afresh at its policy of LNG transports? Uh, the short answer is no. <laughs> uh, this policy has been primarily rooted in uh, genuine concerns about the congestion of the straits and uh, safety issues as well, although you could argue that uh, it's by no means less safe to let an LNG to, to tanker through the Bosporus than to let an oil tanker through the Bosporus. But it's indeed true that the Bosporus is, is very congested. So to increase that traffic uh, is a, a legitimate concern from the Turkish side. I think a second uh, reason why Turkey has been reluctant and will be reluctant to allow LNG tanker traffic through the Bosporus is that very conscious policy of uh, making sure that Turkey uh, plays a central role in uh, Europe's gas diversification efforts uh, is a transit state, a pivotal transit state for the natural gas resources beyond Turkey, be it in Central Asia, in the Caucasus, or in the Middle East. So they want to make sure that LNG traffic uh, does not uh, interfere with those plans of making Turkey a pipeline hub for gas beyond. That's very interesting. So if I hear you correctly, uh, it seems like you're saying that if we have normalization relations with Russia or not, this will not actually change Turkish policy on this particular issue. I would not expect so. I think a, an interesting question is what happens if that uh, Monstre Canal project that is supposed <laughs> to uh, circumvent the Bosporus uh, will mm -hmm. be ready, if it will be ready, and when it will be ready. I mean, in theory, uh, it is supposed to be bigger than even the Panama Canal, so that could easily let LNG tankers through. Uh, but that's, we are talking about uh, hypothetical as of now. Mm -hmm. Well, since we already uh, you know, brought up Russia in this conversation, I'd like to stay on that topic for a little bit. Uh, so as we heard in the first panel, Russia's annexation of Crimea has truly redefined the power dynamics in the region, uh, while also ostensibly giving Russia broad access to exploration in the basin. And since the annexation in March of 2014, Russia has also moved to militarize the peninsula. And in the last panel, uh, the ambassador, Ambassador Mayor, uh, called Crimea the new Kaliningrad in the Black Sea. Also, in a recent Atlantic Council report by one of our fellows, Ariel Cohen, he, we, he called the annexation uh, as something that's going to turn the region toward a Cold War-style confrontation, which in turn further increases risk to South Central Europe's energy supplies, and if a conflict flares up, Moscow could hold the area's energy supplies hostage. Now, Ed, how has Russia's annexation of Crimea shifted the energy security strategies in the Black Sea countries? Are we at risk for this hostage scenario uh, that Ariel described? Well, and I, may I would 
first say that I, I think Crimea was um, uh, a matter of taking advantage of an opportunity uh, uh, from, from Russia's point of view. Uh, and it had uh, the, the motivation, original motivation, had very little to do with energy. Uh, now, other people might differ uh, on that. And the, the, the offshore prospects, uh, the, the, the ones that, that Exxon and others were going after, had not been drilled. You know, they didn't really even have seismic surveys done yet mm -hmm. uh, for, uh, and proper analysis. Maybe it's perspective, I'm, I'm sure Exxon thought so. Um, but you know, it, it wasn't evident uh, uh, yet. Uh, uh, secondly, uh, it's very hard to do offshore projects in, in, in conflict zones. Um, and unless you're willing to bear total risk by yourself and you have the full technology to do everything mm -hmm. that you need, um, you know, Russia taking so risk to drill uh, in a conflict zone, uh, no other companies would be interested or, or, or in, in participating, I wouldn't think, under current political conditions between Ukraine and, and Russia right now because it is a contested area. Um, and um, so, you know, does it change the energy dynamics very much, the, the fact that Russia now uh, occupies uh, Crimea? I don't think so. Hmm. But the general political tension and security uh, uh, tension that, that has resulted uh, from uh, uh, Russian aggression uh, against Ukraine uh, does affect the, the, the region and the regional dynamics as, as, as a whole. Uh, for sure. If I may just make a two-finger comment on, 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 on Steve and, and, and David, I'd, I'd love to be in a panel with Steve and David because Steve is, is an explorationist. So he's an optimist by nature. <laughs> you have to be if you're an explorationist. I'm an economist by training, so I'm a pessimist by, by nature. And, 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 and David knows a lot more about the region than, than I do. So you've got great balance. But, but, but it seems to me the question about uh, LNG mm -hmm. uh, transit through, through the Bosphorus, for example, is the wrong question. Um, I'm not sure there's economic justification mm -hmm. for a LNG receiving terminal inside the Black Sea. Uh, certainly, the, 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 the economic um, uh, uh, justification would be a lot more robust if the countries were better interconnected. Right. Uh, and so it's the, really the interconnector projects that will, will be, become the building blocks for larger projects. But, but politicians love to talk about big projects. You know, Mr. Borisov has not given up on South Stream yet. You know, he's got those pipes in Varna held hostage. Mm -hmm. He's not going to give them up. Uh, uh, so, so it, it, no, he talks about Bulgaria being a, 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 a gas hub. And, and I, for reasons that I don't understand, Brussels is kind of entertaining his illusion about Bulgaria being a gas hub. Bulgaria has no fundamental factors that allows it to be a gas hub, such as, you know, rule of law mm. on, on commercial matters, banking facilities, uh, gas storage facilities. Uh, and, and what Bulgaria needs to do is go ahead and build those that interconnected with Greece. Mm -hmm. I mean, Greece has surplus LNG receiving capacity. Uh, Turkey has surplus LNG receiving capacity that's only used on a seasonal basis. If the markets were better connected, 
Um, you could have LNG, and you can swap along the way if you have the commercial instruments to do it, and if you're physically and commercially connected as one regional market, rather than as separate markets that Russia gets to pick off one at a time, uh, which is, has been the situation. Yeah. Now, hopefully, the, the, the political crises uh, uh, triggered by uh, uh, Russia's annexation of Crimea will concentrate everyone's mind to do their homework that's necessary to develop their regional market. And David, what do you think I about mean, just this? To, just to reinforce Ed's point, I, mm -hmm. I, I fully agree. Uh, by extension, it's the same logic uh, with regard to getting liquefied natural gas to Ukraine. So mm -hmm. it, would, it would be much easier and much of the infrastructure is already in place to bring that LNG <laughs> through a Croatian floating gasification unit terminal uh, via the existing pipelines in Croatia and Hungary and the existing reverse flow between Hungary and, and, and Ukraine. All you need to do is essentially put a compressor station in place on the Croatian side to make sure that reverse flow happens and the floating, uh, the FSRU in, in Croatia. So it would make more sense to look at the interconnections. That's exactly what our North-South Corridor report did a year and a half ago. Don't think big, don't think about these monster projects, don't think about LNG into the Black Sea, but think about expanding the integrated European market or the integrating European market into beyond the European Union and make sure that Ukraine is connected to that market, Turkey is connected to that market, Moldova is connected to that market, the Balkans is connected to that market. And Steve, I know you've done a lot of thought on this as well. Did you want to add to David's point? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think it's important to look at this question, <coughs> the question you asked, Alina, maybe in, in, uh, in, in different pieces. There's, there's an upstream question, which involves with each of the countries we're, we've been talking about, uh, developing indigenous resources and providing them to their domestic populations. Um, and, and in that context, uh, did Russia you know, really damage uh, 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 the potential of the greater Black Sea region by capturing Crimea? Uh, I agree with that, no. I mean, there's some great exploration opportunities, but uh, there are ideas in the minds of geologists right now. Uh, uh, that said, uh, what, what, what can be done is in, in Ukraine, for example, the the potential that exists along the northern uh, uh, rim of the Black Sea, ex-Crimea, is huge. And uh, a lot of work was done during Soviet times, a lot of geophysics, a lot of exploration uh, that served to de-risk uh, the potential, just by example. Um, and so now the challenge Ukraine has is to uh, uh, accelerate its invitations for foreign investment uh, into these areas, because once once that oil and that gas makes it into the marketplace into Ukraine, uh, it starts to change the Ukrainian economy. Uh, similarly in Georgia, uh, 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 getting the, the Georgian energy ministry to encourage development of its um, uh, indigenous resources and you know, allow market forces to, to come in and, and play, uh, uh, basically reform corruption out of the system will serve the country well, and then allow Georgia to become an exporter of gas, much like its neighbor Azerbaijan has done. The second piece, I think, to the question that's important is attention to infrastructure, which David and Ed have mentioned. And I think uh, Europe can take a great lesson from the United States. When you look at how this country, uh, for the you know since World War II, evolved its domestic uh, pipeline system across states, uh, 
um, uh, having the ability to trade gas from uh, coast to coast, um, and uh, you know, despite ever increasing regulatory burdens, is the most efficient system in the world on how to do that. And the challenge that Europe has today is to make those interconnections uh, to avoid those bottlenecks so that the answer isn't to build an agri-project, uh, which will never happen, but instead, as Ed says, to take advantage of where surplus capacity exists mm -hmm. and interconnect country to country to country, which is probably one of the biggest challenges uh, uh, that Europe faces today in its own energy security. If they can solve that interconnection problem, um, uh, it will make a huge difference to the development of, of um, you know, respective economies. So staying with this theme of building, investing, interconnectedness, this, this reminds me sort of, of a broad perspective that energy can often serve as a platform for cooperation versus a platform for conflict. Now in the Black Sea, we've seen energy serve as the, more in the, in the conflict role and divisive role in some ways. But do you think that in the Black Sea region, the energy market could potentially bring in an era of cooperation if we're investing in these interconnected projects that you're talking about now. Because I think we have to remember that the EU, for example, started as a coal and energy community right. and now has developed into a much bigger and broader project. Um, they're taking the very long-term view. Is this something that could be possible in the Black Sea? Anybody that wants to take that? Well, the region first have to see itself in terms of a shared des destiny. Yep. No, rather than, well, we've discover a lot of oil and gas, let's say, offshore Romania. I don't know why I picked Romania. Uh, we're going to preserve it for Romanian use only, rather than allowing uh, a market pricing to, to distribute the gas to wherever the highest value market is. Uh, so right now, that kind of, of mindset is still missing mm -hmm. in the region. Now, that doesn't mean that it couldn't build over time. I mean, I, I think people see uh, uh, the, uh, the attractiveness of, of having diverse and therefore more secure energy supply. Uh, the problem with diversity is that someone has to pay. You know, someone has to pay the cost of diversity. And, and, and uh, you, you look at the whole population of the Balkans, let's just take that side of the Black Sea for a moment. It's less than the population of Turkey, right? I mean, including the Western Balkans. How much diversity of supply can Croatia by itself afford? Mm -hmm. Well, very little. Mm -hmm. But if it's integrated to a regional market, uh, and you, 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 you have the sense that our economic destiny is shared, um, and, uh, and, and there, I think the EU can, can make a major contribution. Um, uh, then uh, I, I think uh, you could have uh, energy projects uh, that, that build on a, a larger regional economic integration. The problem with security, physical security, is that energy projects don't work very well when there's physical insecurity. Mm -hmm. so, so physical security is a precondition of of, 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 of large-scale energy development. And, and I'm sorry I missed the session this morning, but, but earlier this morning, but, but uh, I, I'm sure it, you know, it, it went into it. So, so one of the building blocks has to be a more secure uh, uh, physical security situation in order to allow uh, good economic pro uh, energy projects to go forward. Absolutely. And just you know, as a follow-up, here you brought up this idea of diversification. Um, we tend to talk about oil and gas when we talk about energy security, but what about 
um, other sources of energy, renewables, or even coal and electricity. How will these potential sources shape the dynamics of the region? And which countries uh, do you see as focused on diversification practices more than others? Um, David. That's a great question. We, I think we have a tendency to talk about oil and gas in the Black Sea context, and, and I think it's time to, to, to broaden that discussion to include renewables, all the more so because from a, both an economic prosperity and, and energy security perspective, we are talking about indigenous resources. The region is, is actually quite, uh, has a great potential from a renewable perspective. Is it uh, wind in Ukraine or wind in Romania or the enormous world-class solar resources in Turkey? And indeed, we have seen some progress in Romania in wind, for example, uh, biomass in, in, in Ukraine, the potential is huge. Again, Turkey, solar, we have seen uh, quite substantial progress in the last couple of years. But that requires, again, two things. One, what Ed talked about at the beginning, a stable and predictable investment climate uh, uh, and a, a long-term strategic planning in terms of creating the necessary investment conditions. Uh, in those countries, which is very often not the case. Uh, and two, uh, it goes back to the point about interconnections and, and about a, a regional integrated market, because renewables work best if you have a grid that transcends countries, that connects these countries together. Ideally, at some point, all the way from the Caucasus and the Middle East, throughout the Balkans, all the way up to Ukraine, connecting those resources together and, and making sure that you have a, a lively electricity market that then can mm -hmm. offset the intermittency issues with regard to renewables and create a very efficiently functioning electricity market fueled largely by renewables. And Steve, um, did you want to follow up on that regarding Ukraine specifically? Well, I think uh, Ukraine, as well as the other countries that, that David is referencing, uh, I might take a little issue with you, David. I think, uh, uh, you know, I think looking forward to uh, uh, economies that uh, really need to develop on the back of uh, of cheap and abundant energy, the re renewables are a challenge, I believe, to, uh, uh, to that proposition, uh, that the cost structure associated with renewables, unless they're heavily subsidized, uh, which is a challenge from a, uh, a financially hurting Europe at the moment, uh, 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 is difficult. And I think the, the question comes back to innovation. You know, how do you burn gas more cleanly? How do you burn coal more cleanly? Um, and, uh, and so I think in all the countries that we're talking about that surround the, the greater Black Sea region, that, that my wish would be to see a focus on, uh, uh, on that as a, as a base case for, uh, for uh, development and providing cheap energy to consumers, to industry, to jumpstart economies, and then layer on top of that uh, the, renewables, uh, the renewables question, which no question, a lot of innovation uh, has occurred, but a lot of innovation has to take place at the same pace that it's taken place in the oil and gas sector, say, over the last 100 years, that has allowed countries like the United States to uh, become, net export, you know, become an exporter uh, uh, of energy rather than, a, than an importer uh, when nobody could see it coming 20 years ago. It's, the key is innovation in these areas. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about Ukraine or you talk about Georgia, the reason these countries, um, uh, or uh, Romania or Bulgaria, uh, 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 the reason these countries can uh, step up and provide cheaper energy, mm -hmm. cheaper electricity, cheaper gasoline, cheaper natural gas, is because of that innovation factor. But to get that innovation factor, you need a 
stable and secure an environment for a long term, uh, not just a few years. Investments uh, like this require a 20, 30 year outlook and a 20, 30 year confidence level. And, and, and on renewables, mm -hmm. if I may, Alina, uh, the other factor uh, uh, as part of the stable investment climate that, that both uh, Steve, stable and predictable investment climate that both David and, and Steve mentioned is a truly independent energy regulator. Right. Uh, and, and, and that those are scarce in this part of the world. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, just again, I'm sorry to use Ukraine constantly as the example of what not to do. But, but some of the closest oligarchs to President Yanukovych were heavy investors uh, in, in, in renewable energy. Uh, and, and because they got the feed-in tariff that they demanded uh, through a politicized uh, system to favor the, the, the few uh, elite who have access to that, that, that kind of privilege. And it's not broadly distributed uh, uh, across the economy or across energy markets. So, so having a, a transparent, uh, independent regulatory uh, system that the population has confidence in it's also uh, an important ingredient for renewal development, uh, in my mind. And David, you wanted to I, jump I in? I completely agree with, with, uh, agree everything uh, what Steve said, uh, with the exception of the, the subsidy renewables part. Uh, what, what we have been seeing in the last couple of years, and that goes back exactly to your point about innovation, mm -hmm. is that uh, the cost of renewables, particularly solar, uh, is going down dramatically. And that is a trend that I expect fully to, to continue. And I think that's true in the context of the, the region as well. So my expectation is that already in many parts of the region, uh, you don't need subsidies to make sure that renewables are cost competitive. It's a traditional. Uh, that said, I agree that you, have, you need a mixture. And that I see a, a medium to long-term role for natural gas in the region. But in terms of uh, the economic competitiveness of renewables, uh, I am a lot more optimistic. Mm -hmm. So if I can summarize some of the keywords that we've been talking about here, you know, diversification, innovation, interconnectedness. Um, but one thing that we haven't talked about is dependence. And of course, we have to go back to Russia. We're talking about this region again. Um, Turkey uh, is, was importing 55% uh, of its uh, gas from Russia as recently as 2014. Uh, Ukraine uh, just less than two years ago was almost 100% dependent on Russian imports. Uh, some of the other countries have similar dependencies on Russia. And Russia has, uh, uh, with its recent actions, been uh, perhaps seen as a less stable partner in the energy market, as a less stable supplier. So thinking about dependence, you know, how, can, how should these countries think about uh, reducing the energy independence? Some have already taken steps to do so. Uh, and what should uh, the EU's role be in all of this, particularly on the topic that you mentioned, Ed, with independent regulators? Can the EU play a role in this? Can the EU play in helping the Black Sea region develop uh, less dependence on, on Russia specifically? Well, you know, I have to say that the primary responsibility, of course, is of the national governments themselves. Uh, you know, Ukraine's gas dependency on Russia is not an accident. Uh, it was uh, a part of the system, uh, a political system in, in Ukraine, for reasons that, that I'm sure I don't understand, but Steve does, that doesn't matter what the price of gas is, whether it's $50 or $400 per 1,000 cubic meters, 
Ukraine's domestic gas production have remained at around 20 BCM for the last 20 some years, right? It just doesn't respond to the price signal uh, at all. In the meantime, the, the energy supply and transit relationship uh, uh, between Ukraine and Russia has been used by uh, presidents after presidents, prime ministers after prime ministers as a rent extraction machine. Now, hopefully this phase is finally over. Uh, no, Turkey. Uh, you know, I, I, there, there are lots of things that I don't understand about Turkey. Um, you know, th th this over-politicization in fact, in the case of Turkey, even personalization of the energy relationship between President Putin and President Erdogan does not lead to the kind of 20, 30 year investment horizon that Steve talked about. You know, one day on December 1st of 2014, President Putin announces he's gonna build Turkish Stream. You know, to, somewhat to the surprise of Alexei Miller himself, I think. I don't know how many hours ago he was told about this. Uh, uh, and, and then, it, just as promptly, it gets canceled, yeah. right? Uh, it, and, and, and so uh, these things, you know, why, when you are so dependent on, 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 on gas uh, from, from Russia, uh, would you be encouraging additional gas? Um, there's a history of, you know, gas-related scandals, starting with Bluestream uh, in, 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 in Turkey. Uh, why double down on Russian energy on the nuclear uh, uh, reactor construction? I mean, these are interesting questions. These are questions, uh, dis issues decided by national governments who say they want to diversify, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we all want to diversify. I want to diversify. But it, there, it comes with a cost. And the question is, am I willing to pay the premium mm -hmm. that a, a diversification uh, 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 requires, or am I willing to double down on, on the current relationship? And up until recently, uh, Ukrainian government and, and uh, Turkish government have more or less allow things to grow in terms of the Russian uh, en energy relationship. Now I think diversification is more mm -hmm. important. Now the Southern Corridor has become more important. So refocusing on the bird in hand rather than the two or three in the bush uh, is the right thing to, to, to do. Uh, you know, with the Southern Corridor development, then Turkey can think about one day, one day, maybe not within my career, uh, gas from Iran or northern mm -hmm. Iraq or whatever. But you can't have proof of concept by the, having the southern corridor tan up and tap work first. Then what are the building right. blocks that allow you? So thinking strategically and acting you know, uh, uh, properly uh, is, is most important. Now, can the EU assist as part mm -hmm. of the process? Absolutely. But you know, the EU has been trying to get Bulgaria to build an interconnector seemingly forever. Uh, since accession, actually, mm -hmm. when there was money available mm -hmm. for those kinds of projects. And, and we still don't have it, right? So, uh, but it, it ultimately, it, 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 I think, is the responsibility of the national government. And, and then you can bring in outside resources to help you do what you may not be technically or financially capable on your own to do yet, and you need some assistance. But, but that commitment on the part of national government is, is very important. Right. 
So I want to come back to this point that Ed's bringing up about the balance between national government and perhaps EU responsibilities in this. But I also want to pick up on something that you mentioned, Ed, and alluded to, which is you know, Moscow's gas games in Europe. Um, the, uh, the Kremlin had canceled its plans for South Stream. It canceled its plans for uh, Turk Stream. Uh, but just recently, actually last week, after meetings with the Israeli Prime Minister in Moscow, uh, Putin said that Russia had not definitively canceled either the South Stream or Turk Stream. Um, still, in this context, the EU is likely to renew sanctions against Russia in just a couple of weeks. Uh, so how would you interpret these recent comments from Moscow, and do you see these projects potentially being reopened? I'm not even going to bring in Nord Stream 2, although you're welcome to, and we've talked a lot about that. Um, you know, David, what are your thoughts? Um, I think that the Kremlin has always been really good at playing this poker game of competing pipelines, various pipeline projects going to Europe, um, and very good at bluffing at times. Uh, if you look at the existing capacities of you know, pipeline uh, capacities going to Europe, you already have a vast overcapacity through Ukraine, through Poland, through the existing Nord Stream 1 pipeline that is uh, unused, or at least a large part of that is unused. Uh, so you could ask the question why the Kremlin wants to increase that pipeline capacity to Europe. And of course the answer is quite simple, to avoid Ukraine and, and to, to, to uh, take that Ukraine transit uh, equation or transit issue out of the equation. My understanding is that the, the recent comments on Turkish Stream and South Stream should be interpreted in, in that context. And my understanding uh, as well is that for the Kremlin the most important project is Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 that would bring additional capacities directly to Gazprom's core markets in, in Western Europe. Uh, so anything that they say in the context of uh, Turkish Stream or South Stream should be interpreted in that poker game of trying to reinforce the case for, for Nord Stream 2. Now that said, again going back to the issue of circumventing Ukraine, I think it would make tremendous sense from a Russian perspective to build the first leg of Turkish Stream at least, so that you can hmm. uh, avoid the Ukrainian... Turkish Stream or South Stream? Turkish Stream. Turkish stream. Uh, and then you could argue as well that uh, maybe there are some merits to consider building the uh, uh, South Stream as well, the first leg of South Stream. I could imagine the first two legs, half the capacity of the original 63, with Turkish Stream going down to Istanbul, uh, or to the, uh, to the, to the, to the Western Turkey, and South Stream going to Bulgaria and eventually feeding some gas into the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline, the second 10 BCM capacity of the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline. That would be a brilliant Russian maneuver because mm. then you could uh, turn the European Union diversification efforts upside down, exploit the third-party access, European Union legislation, European Union rules, and bring gas, Russian gas, via an alternative route to uh, the Italian market, which is another core Russian market. And that's just a theory. theory. Uh, it's a very provocative theory, David. Uh, I hope the, well, I'll. Uh, just another point yeah. though, uh, going back to the issue of constraints yeah. that I'd already talked about, uh, and financial constraints in particular. So Gazprom is not really in a position these days to invest billions of dollars into all kinds of pipeline projects. So they're gonna have to make strategic decisions themselves. Uh, and there are many competing projects, including on the upstream side, 
in eastern Siberia, including uh, the, the midstream projects that they're supposed to build in order to ship gas to China, if that ever happens, and including all these competing projects in Europe. So they are, the golden years are mm -hmm. over. Uh, and with a depressed price environment in Europe uh, and with uh, severe limitations on Gazprom's access to, to financing, it's not going to be that easy to, to build all of the above and right. just yeah. play around uh, the If I can just build on what David said, uh, uh, that uh, you know, uh, the affordability of all these various uh, uh, Gazprom pipe dreams. Uh, I, I once did a, a, a session at CSIS, which I called the David Letterman top 10 list of, of, of Russian pipeline uh, projects, you know, which one's more, mo most likely. I, I agree with David that the Nord Stream 2 is by far the, the, the focus now. It, it has nothing to do with the Black Sea. It's, it has to do with the pivot to China not working fast enough or, 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 or well enough uh, to make a difference. So you need to redouble your efforts in your central market uh, in, in, in Western Europe. But, but having said that, I would also say that unless you can afford to build a South Stream or a Turkish Stream one strand or two strand, that Ukraine transit will still be necessary. Because for Gazprom to supply its markets in Southeastern Europe, uh, in which it has a virtual import mon monopoly. It has to go, to go, go, go through uh, 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 Ukraine. So this notion that somehow by 2019, just because there's a contract that terminates then, that you know, Russia is going to do something radically different in terms of gas uh, supply into southeastern Europe is just wrong. Uh, first of all, the, the, the 2009 agreement that Timoshenko signed has no ship or pay obligation on, on, on Gazprom. So if it was able to, it could have canceled all shipments through you know, uh, Ukraine tomorrow uh, or the day after. Uh, but it, it, if in order to supply its current customers, mm -hmm. it will need uh, uh, um, uh, Ukraine for quite a long time beyond 2019, uh, uh, and, and, and unless they are successful in building Nord Stream 2, it will need uh, a Ukraine even for Central and, and parts of Western Europe. So Steve, what do you think about these uh, Russian pipe dreams and, and Ukraine's role? Well, you know, the, uh, the infrastructure question is just so central to everything we're talking about. And I think it comes down to, uh, as Ed highlighted, uh, uh, to each national government in the region having the will to create an integrated uh, pipeline network. And then that challenges in a free market system with open competition, that challenges crazy ideas of building these uh, you know, likely uneconomic pipeline systems that as time goes on and more upstream success is had and more gas is pushed into the market, you see, you're gonna see a phenomenon of what happened in this country in the last 20 years where Gas prices collapse because of an overabundance of uh, of natural resources, and uh, uh, you know maybe we ought to encourage uh, Gazprom to do this because it may be the straw that breaks the camel's back and shakes Russia to its senses that uh, it can indeed be you know a, a contributing member to a broader European community because when that day comes, uh, 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 having that integrated pipeline system between the states of Europe uh, is really the key here. And to do it in the most economically efficient manner possible versus trying to set 
Guinness Book of World Records engineering feats, uh, you know, to provide, <laughs> provide gas for a short period of time, that is going to become obsolete uh, over 20, 30 years. So I do want to bring the audience into the conversation. So we have about uh, you know, 40 minutes for audience questions. So yes, please, uh, gentlemen over there, and please do introduce yourself and state your comment in the form of a question. <laughs> Thank you. Dejan Katrachev, Deputy Chief of Mission with the Embassy of Bulgaria. Since Bulgaria was mentioned many times, uh, I'd Good. just like to make a short comment uh, and just to assure you that uh, it is the top priority of our government to build the interconnector with Greece and not any other uh, dream pipe pipelines. So as far as I'm aware, uh, South Stream has been cancelled and it is not anymore on the table. Uh, so uh, I would like to assure you that is our really our top priority. Uh, we signed uh, last December the final investment decision on the interconnector and it is scheduled to, the construction is, is, construction is scheduled to be, uh, to begin in uh, October 2016, so in a few months. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, in August we will have uh, our interconnector with Romania accomplished. So, which will uh, secure possibilities for reverse gas, gas flows of uh, 1.8 BCMs, which is a great achievement. Two, two days ago, uh, we launched a modernized uh, um, station, which will on the Greek border, which will bring, which will secure the possibility of uh, reverse gas flows from Greece, which is really a great achievement as well. So we've been trying to move uh, forward our other interconnectors as well with Serbia. So uh, it's really uh, the top uh, priority of our government in the energy spheres. Thank you. Thank you. Other questions? Yes, please. Please do introduce yourself and you were here. Um, and please keep your comments to questions. Yes, this will be a question. <laughs> uh, my name is Mindy Reiser. I'm vice president of an NGO called Global Peace Services USA. I would like to have the panel address the whole issue of climate change. We did touch on renewables some, and some valid points were made about cost and so on. But there's certainly an impetus in some circles to really move ahead with looking at best ways to reduce the carbon footprint. So I'd like to know about environmental movements in some of the countries we're concerned with, and also the impetus of climate change and the Paris Conference on what goes forward with energy production and energy conservation. Who would like to take this question? David? Uh, it's a critical, we are six months after Paris, COP21, and uh, it, it is a critical concern, should be a critical concern, at least for the, for the countries in the region. Uh, they both submitted INDCs in the Paris COP21 process. Those INDCs are bold. They can be bolder. Uh, again, the potential, I think, for the region is huge. 
Uh, one issue that we have not talked about in the context of energy security is energy efficiency, which I think is a, is a, is a, is a key issue in the context of Ukraine in particular. Ukraine still uses about four times as much energy to produce one unit of GDP than the rest of the European Union. So there are huge gains there uh, in terms of energy efficiency. Uh, so that's, I think, a, a critically important aspect. Anybody else want to speak to that climate change question? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think Dave, David hit the nail on the head that the low-hanging fruit is, is energy efficiency. I don't know that any of these countries have very tough uh, 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 carbon reduction targets because they did such a good job collapsing their economies first that, uh, uh, that depending on your benchmark, uh, they, they don't ha have a lot to do. I mean, Russia is in the same position. Um, so, so energy efficiency is, is, is by far the most in, uh, important thing uh, uh, that they could be doing. And with that, you need market-related pricing. Uh, so if you, if you only see energy supply as a public good to which the government should subsidize, then you're not going to get market-related pricing and you're going to get overconsumption of, of, of energy. Uh, so, so having uh, uh, the market signals uh, do their job uh, is really quite Im important. I if I can respond to the Bulgaria uh, 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 comment, uh, I, I'm really glad to hear this. I mean, this is wonderful. I, um, I, I had occasion to meet with Mr. Berisov three times when he was prime minister the first time around, and each time he complained about uh, the price that Russia charges him for gas, his country for gas. And, and I, I said to him, as, as a business guy, I would do exactly the same thing to you because you have no alternative. So, so your job as prime minister is to create alternatives for your country so that you, 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 you have competition to, uh, to supply uh, into your market. I, I, I don't know that the prime minister has given up at South Stream. I hope he has. Mm -hmm. uh, I tried to tell him to give up Nabucco at the time. Uh, because that was another nonsensical economic project, uh, you know, sponsored by six companies with go, no gas going into countries with no market. Uh, wonderful project. Um, and uh, at, at too large a scale. I mean, that, that was, uh, again, uh, uh, part, part of the problem. So I, I really do hope that political leaders in the region uh, first learn lessons from the past. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and also, this, this overall increase in tension, and, and therefore, the, the felt vulnerability mm -hmm. of relying on one energy supply only for your imports is, is understood and addressed in a proper, practical way. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. If I could add, if I could add to Ed's comments that with respect to Bulgaria, I think also we're focusing on infrastructure, which is one of the parallel paths. But uh, Bulgaria is a great example of uh, very little activity in uh, development of indigenous, exploration of indigenous resources. And, and somehow there has to be a complement uh, you know, to the urgency of putting in infrastructure uh, with a complement of uh, encouraging uh, uh, exploration of natural resources, which, uh, uh, which there, is, there is great potential. And somehow, somehow that has to come into play uh, as part of a diversification strategy. Right. Yeah. Go ahead, David. Talking about indigenous resources, so yeah. there is huge potential in the Black Sea 
uh, many question marks with regard to technology, with regard to costs, with regard to demand, with regard to pricing, when in terms of uh, gas, offshore, also methane hydrates, again, mm -hmm. big innovation technology question, huge question marks, but the potential is certainly there. Subpropellic mud, mineral resources, so there is, there is the whole universe out there in terms of indigenous resources uh, offshore, many of these countries yeah. that we should let, look Let into. the Japanese do the research on <laughs> methane hydrates. Right. They're in a worse, more vulnerable position, and they have more money than countries <laughs> in the Black Sea. And they haven't cracked it yet. No, I think that this point that you brought up earlier, Dave, about efficiencies is incredibly important. Uh, and it seems to me that efficiency and investment infrastructure are inherently tied together, and not just at the level of, you know, national economies, but at the level of households. So in a place like Ukraine, for example, where we still have a situation where many households can't control their consumption. Uh, it's very common to show up in the middle of winter in Ukraine, and everybody has the windows open because it's too hot inside. And, I mean, and this is a, a serious challenge for increasing efficiency in these, um, and this goes back to your point of the post-Soviet legacy. You know, how do these countries overcome that burden of history where you had this sort of centralized planning and free energy, more or less, from the household perspective. I want to bring in a few more questions. Ariel, please. Thank you very much. Uh, Ariel Cohen, uh, non-resident senior fellow here. Um, one of the Ukrainian leaders just announced that they may have options with Iran. And as the sanctions on Iran are lifted, Iran is desperate to export natural gas. Last time I checked, there's no pipeline that is available. And the only way they can do it is, it is either attack, to build a pipeline attack. to Armenia and to Georgia and then liquefy um, and uh, transport it across the Black Sea, or build the necessary pipe, main export pipeline that they don't have into Turkey. They have a 14, uh, 14 uh, BCM pipeline that is old and crickety. Uh, to Turkey, but build a big pipeline and then have a uh, an interconnector, uh, probably to Bulgaria, Romania, and to Ukraine, and that will take ten years, maybe, if it happens. So, does Ukraine have an Iranian option? Thank you. No. <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe Steve would agree with this pessimistic economist, but. If Ukraine had the proper policies in place in terms of investment conditions, um, it could be self-sufficient in gas in a relatively short period of time between reducing overconsumption of gas and increasing domestic production. I mean, they're, they're actually not that far off now. Um, but with, let's say, in the five to seven years, they could be self-sufficient in gas. Uh, you know, talk, go, running off to Ashgabat in Tehran does not solve Ukraine's energy problem. But they like rushing off to Ashgabat and Iran for reasons, again, uh, like you, Ariel, that, that, that I don't understand. I don't think Iran has any surplus gas uh, to, 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 to export. And if one day, say 10 years from now, Iran is in a position to export gas, 
Um, uh, my guess is that it would be, and, and your big guess is uh, uh, offshore in the Persian Gulf, my guess is that it would be LNG and liquefaction and then the, the world's your oyster in terms of export market. Why would you be tied to uh, uh, pipelines through half a dozen transit country to get to market? But it costs the Iranians absolutely nothing to claim that they are interested in supplying pipeline gas to Europe. So they do that all the time. They cost nothing to, to, to do that. Uh, and, and, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm sure Western politicians never do such a thing. Uh, uh, but but uh, you know, the, to fantasize about Iranian gas when you, Iran's not even a net gas exporter today. It, it imports as much gas from, from Turkmenistan as it exports to Turkey. So I, I don't really understand what any of you, but, but no, focusing on the work that you need to do yourself rather than talking about this, these fantasies, I, I guess is part yeah. of my central message here. Mm -hmm. David? Uh, uh, recently returned from Tehran. I was there for an energy conference and I had extensive conversations on, on gas production and export policy. Ukraine really did not come up in those conversations. So I, I share Ed's skepticism in terms of uh, that being a feasible option. Uh, it is true that they have very ambitious plans to increase gas production from the 200 or so BCM today to above 400. By the end of this decade, I have again severe doubts whether that's, that's feasible, whether the necessary foreign investment will be indeed attracted to the country given all the political and regulatory and, and other problems. Uh, and even if that happens, uh, there is an increasing domestic uh, demand for gas, including from households, industry, the petrochemical industry. Uh, they have ambitions to turn that gas into electricity and export that regionally. They have regional export plans. They need gas for reinjection to keep oil flowing from uh, the legacy fields in, in Iran. So I am extremely uh, doubtful whether they will have sufficient quantities uh, in, or major quantities to, to export. And then, of course, all the infrastructure problems that, that, that Ed already talked about, how, you, how the gas actually gets there. Uh, just one comment on the efficiency part. I fully agree with Ed that that's a low-hanging fruit, but at the same time, it's extremely hard to do. So the problem with energy efficiency is that it's, it's very makes perfect economic sense, but it needs, as you, Alina, pointed out, behavioral change, uh, but it also needs uh, a lot of investment into insulation, into, into all kinds of things that are not very easy to do and financially challenging. Absolutely. So. More questions, real question. Yes, sir, please. Um, here, uh, Katie. <laughs> Thanks. My name is George Goldsmith, and I'm with uh, Amrocap, which is an investment and merchant bank consultancy. We work in energy and security. Uh, we have offices in, in Romania, the Ukraine, and the U.S. Um, this question is kind of asking the fox how to design the chicken coop, but uh, I, first of all, thank you. I mean, this, your comments and your insights have been fantastic. I've really enjoyed them. But I want to challenge you a little bit because I know quite a lot about renewable energy. And um, when people think of renewable energy, they automatically think of wind and solar. That's all they think about. Wind and solar get the subsidies. That's what it, everything is all about. There is a vast array of other uh, technologies that are proven, they're used in other industries, and that could be applied as uh, sources of energy. And they can be applied as local, nodular kinds of, of energy um, centers 
that would, so I, let me ask my question. I, I wanna ask each of you to answer this because three different perspectives. For a moment, completely change the paradigm that you operate under, okay? Because all I've heard at both sessions is about centralization, um, large infrastructure projects, um, mega markets. So let's flip the paradigm for us, just for a second and pick any country, Romania, Ukraine, Bulgaria, and would each of you just take a second to think about how you would, what it would take to turn each of these countries into an energy independent country that was based on renewable and sustainable technologies. Wind, solar, gasification, pyrolysis, geothermal, solar thermal, all of which are available and you know proven technologies. Just ignore your skepticism on that it can be done. I, I'd, I'd love to just get your insight on how it might be done. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah I think, uh, you know, candidly, uh, first answer to your question is a lot of patience. A lot of patience amongst the population. Uh, you know, today, uh, you know, when you look at just how everyday life goes on and uh, trans just basic transportation, basic lighting, and, you know, where that energy comes from and making that transition to uh, the energy sources that you talk about um, it will require patience to do that. Um, I think free market environments that are challenged by uh, abundant, uh, cheaper natural resources will be a challenge to, to what you're describing. And so the question becomes how how do you accelerate innovation to take advantage of, say, you know, plentiful solar energy uh, or to encourage uh, geothermal uh, uh, exploration and development? And uh, because, because all of this roots itself in, um, uh, in investments that require rates of return, I think that's going to be the, nat the natural challenge to the, to the paradigm shift that you're that you're describing. And then I think that's what the world has struggled with. Uh, and it's constantly challenged by, you know, we thought we were getting there again in this country, and then we saw another breakthrough in, in the uh, fossil fuel industry that provided cheap and abundant energy that then challenges the paradigm that, that, that you're speaking of. And so it's that vicious cycle of uh, how, how, do you, how do you competitively look at that? We talked about methane hydrates in the Black Sea, for example. Um, uh, when you get to that level of talking about, well, how do you harvest energy from methane hydrates, you've got to have a world uh, or a regional uh, energy price of very, very high in order to be able to compete with the alternative forms of energy that are on the market today. So I think the challenge to the paradigm you're describing that I, that I always get stuck on is how do you, how do you allow these type of renewables to compete, compete freely with the current platform of energy delivery, you know, to different, different countries, yeah. Uh, I mean, the honest answer is beyond my competence, uh, but, but let me give it a try. Uh, it, it seems to me that in this region, 
that one of the preconditions has to be a stable, transparent regulatory regime that promotes the kind of uh, alternative renewable energy that you're, you're talking about. Uh, and, and that's missing right, right now, uh, by and large. Uh, that you know, just even access to the electricity grid. Who controls that? How do you get access to it? Uh, is it, very much a personalized kind of uh, uh, favor trading mm -hmm. process in this part of the world uh, right now. I mean, and 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 that stability uh, of investment terms has to be uh, uh, longer term than just one government or one cabinet of, of, of ministers. Um, in our own country, look at you know the encouragement the wind and solar industry got when Congress gave five-year credits rather than you know having to renew it every year. That that kind of stability uh, would go a long way, uh, I think, to help promote uh, uh, renewable uh, energies um, in spite of the economic challenges that, that Steve rightly mentioned. I mean, I fully agree with the desire to, to change the paradigm. I think the key question is, I, I, I don't think the question is whether we will get there. We will get there. The question is whether we will get there in time from a climate change perspective, going back to, to that question. And I think there are ways to fast track the transition, including in that region. In, in my mind, the best policy tool is carbon pricing, uh, is to introduce a, a policy tool that will level the playing field will fast-track transition, as opposed to subsidies who are prone to misdesign and prone to corruption, feeding tariffs and, and, and the like. You introduce a transparent, central, market-based price signal into the system that will level the playing field and improve the competitiveness of renewables. But to your point about large-scale infrastructure, I think Ed mentioned that you still need some centralized, large-scale electricity grid-type infrastructure in order to be able to create a continental uh, an interconnected regional uh, electricity market to improve the competitiveness of renewables. So you still need these type of, of, of major centralized big infrastructure piece investments to, to, to fast track that transition. Absolutely. Additional questions? Uh, the gentleman in the back row. Yes. Yes, uh, Lee Evershove. Uh, LAI Consulting, I deal more with uh, downstream two-part question. First address specifically to Steve, uh, with the invasion of Crimea, uh, it, appear, it appears that any investment in Prekurchinsk field east of Crimea is off the table for now. Uh, is there a possibility then of that investment going further into the western part of Black Sea? Uh, there were a lot of hopes for Ukrainian independent, uh, gas independence. Uh, second part, uh, one part of energy equation that we haven't heard much about, uh, nuclear, Ukraine being specifically uh, one of the largest supplies of uh, unenriched uranium to Russia, uh, now beginning to develop its own uh, fuel element industry, Westinghouse is there, which apparently is making 12, the subsidiary of Rosatom, very unhappy. Um, is there a possibility of further development of the new market, uh, possibly uh, additional investors coming in? Uh, looking at a possibility of maybe low-level enrichment such as Kazakhstan proposed. Uh, same thing happening in Ukraine. Do you think that could happen? Thank you. Steve, do you want to take the Yeah, I think your, your point is well taken. Uh, you know, the, uh, I think I mentioned it earlier that the, uh, 
the western, western part of the Black Sea, northwestern part of the Black Sea, west of uh, Crimea, is a very attractive province. And it uh, goes back to Ed's point about the government, uh, the national government, uh, really focusing on wanting to accelerate uh, invitations to come and invest and making it, making it easy to come and invest and pick up where the Soviets left off. Uh, there's tremendous potential in, a, in actually one of the few parts of the Black Sea that isn't challenged by high cost, uh, really deep water drilling. There's a nice shelf uh, that can be worked on uh, offshore uh, Ukraine. Nothing said about, uh, about the onshore region of southwestern Ukraine that is uh, significantly under underexplored uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So ab absolutely, and that's why I think you know, ultimately what happened with Crimea isn't a major blow uh, to the energy picture uh, in the Black Sea. And, and the reality is, uh, and this goes back to the cost question, but the reality is the Black Sea itself is uh, probably one of the most underexplored uh, bodies of water that's easily accessible in the world today. And it's been challenged by ultra deep water and deep water uh, uh, propositions just, that just don't work uh, you know, below $70, $80 a barrel. And what about the nuclear question? If, if you listen to the Westinghouse people, which I do from time to time, they would tell you there is huge scope for optimizing the operations of the Ukrainian uh, uh, reactors, as well as extending the life of them. Uh, and, and they would be interested in, in, in doing that. Unfortunately, that's another one of those energy fiefdoms uh, that been uh, dominated by special interests in Ukraine for, for a long, long time, uh, in, in, in including you know, people in the Rada and, 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 and so on. Uh, Ambassador Herbst can tell you how long Westinghouse have been trying uh, uh, to do business in, 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 in Ukraine. But, but the potential is huge, and, and it requires a, a, a government that's reform-minded in Kiev uh, that would allow the introduction <laughs> of, of uh, modern technology uh, and, 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 and operating methods uh, to achieve the kind of efficiencies that's available. Uh, Ukraine had from time to time been a electricity exporter uh, to Poland mm -hmm. and, 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 and elsewhere, and, and it could do more of that. David, did you have anything to add? Okay, let me uh, start to take a couple of rounds. Let me gather about uh, Couple of questions. So the gentleman in the glasses in the back. Hi, uh, Michael Stetcher, Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. What is the progress of and prospects for further integration of Moldova into regional and European energy markets? Thank you. Additional questions, ma'am. Uh, Elaine Sereo, Associate Rector. Thank you. Elaine Sereo, Associate Rector of WIUU in Ukraine. Uh, how? How does the panel view uh, the end of 2008-2009 uh, position that uh, former Prime Minister Tymoshenko took with uh, regarding the um, oil drilling by ConocoPhillips, and how that sunk the uh, that whole initiative, and how that affected the stability and security by giving a green light to Russia to go forward with plans in the Crimea. On Moldova? Um, uh, you know, I think Moldova is, uh, 
is, is uh, you know, one of those countries today, as, as you're pointing out with your question, of, uh, you know, that sits in this gray zone uh, between uh, NATO, uh, NATO countries uh, and Russia, uh, Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine. Uh, the three of them uh, you know, recently signed uh, EU association agreements and, and as a result of that sort of uh, pushed their destiny towards uh, integration into Europe. Um, I think with Moldova, there is a, um, uh, there's a desire to integrate westward. And, uh, uh, and uh, like the other countries we've been talking about today, uh, there's a need for interconnection in order to, to do that. Uh, Moldova can be a transit country uh, for energy uh, between Ukraine and, and Romania, uh, but it also needs uh, uh, to diversify its own supply for its small population and, uh, and its economic development. Uh, and uh, there are initiatives ongoing today uh, to do that, uh, starting with uh, 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 enhancing geopolitical understanding of, uh, uh, of Moldova's current government, uh, allowing the Moldovans to get their, get their act together and uh, get their government uh, uh, stabilized and moving forward in a, in a positive way. And, uh, um, from my own vantage point, it seems like this, this is trending in the right direction. Just to, to add to what Steve uh, said, so there is progress on the interconnector Moldova-Romania, which is a critically important project. Uh, an important point is the implementation of the third energy package and EU legislation on energy provisions in general in Moldova. Unfortunately, there is a, a, a prolonged period of phasing that in that now extends beyond 2020, and, and I would argue that Moldova would be better off if, if it fast-tracked that process so that it functionally, at least from an energy market perspective, integrates to the European Union earlier rather than later. And um, on the Ukraine question, Conoco? Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the company. It's not ConocoPhillips. It was Vanco. It was Vanco. Yeah, it was Vanco. Um, and and, and uh, Timoshenko uh, interfered with that award because she thought that it was not uh, done on a transparent basis. And she's right about that. Now, I don't know that she would have done it on a transparent basis either. But, but, but you know, uh, as I recall the bid, uh, the announcement came out the day after Christmas, and it was done only in, in Russian. Uh, and, and so there was a limited number of bidders uh, 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 on that. Um, you know, and, and eventually, uh, the, 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 the common knowledge in Kiev is the Ukrainian oligarchs bought into the Vanko uh, 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 enterprise, including Mr. Akhmedov. Uh, but whether that has anything to do with uh, uh, Russian uh, annexation of Crimea, I, I don't see the connection. Yeah. Uh, but but it, it, it was a controversial uh, 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 award. Uh, no work really had been done yet uh, right. on that block. So no one actually knows if there is any oil and gas uh, in that block at, at all. As I said earlier at the beginning, I, I, I think you, uh, uh, you know, uh, there are lots of reasons why uh, uh, Russia may have wanted to annex Crimea, uh, and, and, and energy may have been one of them, but, but certainly much lower down on, on the priority list, I would have thought. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think. When you look at Russia and the broader spectrum of its energy, uh, uh, of its energy assets, uh, 
what may exist offshore Crimea is so insignificant uh, uh, that I, I can't imagine it was a main a main driver uh, for that for that action. Uh, but I, but I do want to make the comment go back to Ed's earlier point, uh, which I like about having the national government will. Uh, I think that's really the issue. Is uh, uh, you talk about how the Vanco block was awarded, etc. This is all part of. Uh, transitioning into a much more transparent environment uh, that allows free market competition to bring investors in. And in the case of Ukraine, you've seen the majors go out, independents, some of us are going, going in, but the, uh, but the majority of the, the, the majors have gone out. Uh, and it comes down to eliminating corruption, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Georgia, whether it's, uh, uh, you, you name it, uh, eliminating corruption and opening up a stability uh, and, a, and a sense of confidence for investors over the long term. And, and then change will come. We have time for maybe one or two more questions, if there are any in the audience. General in the back. Anybody else? Uh, okay, so you had the last word. Okay. Uh, it's not a lot of pressure. Uh, my name is Dimitri. <laughs> I don't have any affiliation. My question, you've kind of touched on this already. Uh, how much harmony is there in environmental standards in the energy sectors amongst these countries and Russia included? And how far are they behind the rest of Europe as far as environmental standards? The short answer is not much and far. <laughs> <laughs> well, well said, well, David. <laughs> well, I could say from, from operating in the oil and gas arena in, in this area, uh, each country has its own standards. Uh, and uh, I would say in today's environment uh, in Eastern Europe, it's pretty much up to each operator to bring a responsible level, level of, uh, uh, of operations to, uh, to what it does. And so I agree with David. I mean, uh, each country has its own uh, environmental uh, rules and regulations that uh, like anything else, it has to develop, it has to enforce, and, uh, and find a way to, to do that in harmony with de building their respective economies. I, yep. if I, might, I, I think we referred to this earlier already, that the, I think the strategic challenge is that it's quite clear that neither Ukraine nor Moldova or Turkey, for that matter, is going to join the European Union anytime soon. So in my mind, the strategic challenge, including in the energy sphere, is how to make sure that these countries integrate with the rest of the European Union in the best possible way without a fully-fledged membership politically being feasible anytime soon. And I think it's true in the energy space and I think it's true in the environmental space as well. So I think that's the strategic challenge and that's what the European Union could and should do to help uh, these countries integrate with the rest of the, yeah. the rest of the European Union or the rest of the Europe better in all these spaces. Ed? Um, so, I want to give our uh, panelists last opportunity to have a last word, if anybody wants to take it, or you feel like you've, you've made your points. Uh, I, I think Ukraine is really the elephant in the room, yeah. uh, and, and that needs to be addressed. If you look at the larger Black Sea area, you know, the, other than Russia itself, uh, you know, it, 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 it occupies a huge space, uh, and, and its energy security affects the energy security of its neighbors. Uh, which receive gas through the Ukrainian route. So stabilizing that, that country, I, I think, should be a, a priority of 
not only this national government, but, but friends of Ukraine, uh, supporters of Ukraine that want to help it uh, uh, be a, a, a stable uh, uh, anchor in, in the Black Sea rather than a, a one that raises risks and uncertainty. Absolutely. We couldn't agree more here at the Planning Council. Steve? Um, I think uh, you know, what's key from today's uh, uh, discussions is that uh, security, uh, physical security, is critical. And uh, being able to ensure physical security leads to uh, being able to secure um, uh, economic security through development of, uh, of energy, whether it's uh, fossil fuels or, uh, or whether it's uh, uh, renewables, uh, because of the levels of investment that are required there. And uh, the real challenge to that, uh, whether it's Ukraine or any other country around the Black Sea, is uh, reforming. Um, reforming energy ministries and their practices uh, to allow this very uh, you know, high revenue-based uh, part of the economy to, uh, to work in a, in, a, in a transparent and open manner that will attract uh, significant investment from around the world. That, that's the biggest challenge. I think the, <clears throat> the key message is to, to look at the region in an integrated manner and also to, to have a holistic approach, so mm -hmm. not just to uh, look at oil, gas, coal, or renewable separately, but, but to have an integrated strategy uh, uh, and a regional strategy as opposed to a, a national strategy. We have to have a national strategy as well, but it has to be integrated in the wider region to, uh, to, to exploit those efficiencies. And that's part of what we try to do with the Energy and Economic Summit in Istanbul that the Atlantic Council uh, does every year to bring together all these parties to have that dialogue, to have that discussion, uh, to explore the various avenues of, of cooperation. Absolutely. So please join me in thanking our panel for this very interesting discussion.